You're listening to the Performance Group Podcast, a place to listen, learn, and get to know the unseen heroes of our local community. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sean Kirby, and on the Performance Group Podcast, we make it our mission to learn from those around us and shed light on our local community. If you're new to the show, we have spoken to business leaders, community, organizers, friends, and family. And before we jump in today, I hope to ask you for a favor. If you could please just take one second to hit subscribe and share our posts. It would mean a whole lot to me, our team here at the Performance Group, and our amazing guests on today's show. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Blue Collar Blueprint Podcast. My name is Sean Kirby, and today I am so lovely joined by Mr. Swank. Mr. Lance Swank from the Sterling Group up in Mishawaka, Indiana. Lance, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome, Sean. So Lance and I got hooked up by the IBA, the um, Indiana Builders Association, and they suggested him because he has spent so much time in their boards, their committees, and all the things that they thought he would be a great representative for the Blue Collar Blueprint. So Lance, if we could go ahead and start with a large 30,000 foot view of kind of who you are, where you're from, and how you got to where you are today. Sure, I'd be happy to. As, as Sean said, uh, you know, I'm deeply involved in the Indiana Builders Association, National Association of Home Builders, and that's because we develop, manage, build, uh, and invest in multifamily housing and self-storage throughout the eastern half of the United States. We happen to be domiciled here in Indiana, but over the years, uh, most of our work has been in the Southeast. What's drove that has been primarily population growth, income growth, rent growth, all the data matrix that draw business. Indiana is a great place to live and work. Uh, and we do do business here, but uh, we needed to expand and made that decision. Anyways, I've been at it since 1983, graduate of DePaul University in uh, central Indiana. It's a family-owned business. My dad and I built the business. Uh, we have a uh, development company, a construction company, property management company, and an investment company. We manage and own roughly 11,000 apartments and about 2.5 million square feet of self-storage um, in about 15 states. I'm the CEO. Uh, my dad's still involved. He's the chairman, uh, and we love that fact. And I have a younger brother that joined the firm 20 years ago. So that's great. And we have the youngest member of the Swank family join the firm this year after graduating from college. So truly a succession plan, very deliberate to grow this business into the future. That's amazing. That's, that's amazing to have your family back in. So who's your newest person then? My youngest son, Jared Swank. Jared. Where'd Jared he, go to school? Well, he started at NC State on a wrestling scholarship and uh, really? ended up transferring. Yeah, ended up transferring to a, a small school in in Kentucky called University of the Cumberlands. You couldn't have two more opposite universities. Um, great experience for him. The right move for him. The small school experience was perfect. The NAIA is is a great athletic association uh, that competes a little differently than NCAA. Worked great for him and for our family. So. Um, all's good. And, uh, he's excited to be on board. Awesome. 174 pounder from Penn <laughs> high school. That's right. 
Man, look at this dude. Built like a brick. I'd finish the rest of that, but it's built like a brick house. So what made what made you guys get into wrestling? The only reason I ask, I'm a high school wrestling coach. So we're going to talk wrestling for a little bit. We'll get back into the home building. Well, I was, I've been president of our uh, Penn Wrestling Club for many years and stepped down a couple of years ago. Uh, I wrestled in high school, certainly nowhere near as good as my son. Uh, we got engaged really at a at kind of a late date when he was in fourth grade. There's a, a small, you know, come and come and spend a week kind of thing with Penn Wrestling. He got hooked. And from then on, we traveled the country. He was good. So um, I've probably seen him wrestle 1,800 times, something like that. So it's it's been a labor of love. I will tell you, he would never do it over again any differently. Uh, it's been a great journey for him and our family. Absolutely. Um, if you were to speak to wrestling and what it breeds into um, young men, young women all over the country, what does wrestling do for people from a discipline standpoint? That's actually a great question, Sean. I will tell you, um, I ask every, every person I interview if they were involved in athletics at any time in their life. And I, I listen intently to see if they are in a team sport or an individual sport. To answer your question, I would say wrestling and swimming are, are two of the most difficult sports as far as endurance. They certainly build character through personal responsibility, uh, dedication to training, mental toughness, and a team environment. Uh, truly, wrestling has both. It's just you out there, but it takes a team to build you. And you're part of a team uh, in, in the whole process of winning and losing in dual meets. Uh, so I could go on and on about this. Uh, I'm a huge fan of athleticism as it builds character, uh, and certainly at a, at a young age. And I think we should stay active our whole lives. I'm a mind body. I'm a mind body spirit guy. As you should be, as you should be. I think wrestling is one of those things that carries consistency, even when you're not motivated. And that translates to the workplace really well, because there's a lot of days nobody wants to show up and go to work, but you put your head down and you do it anyways. You got to be a grinder. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome. NC State, that's a big school. Yeah, he was a scholarship athlete there in, uh, uh, you know, Little Fish, Big Pond. And I think he, in fact, I know he realized very quickly he wouldn't see Matt time till junior, senior year. Yeah. And it's a job. There's no doubt. Um, and I think I, I do know he wanted to have Matt time. So he chose an alternative uh, environment, plus way too many distractions. Um, lots of fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I went to the University of Iowa. Here. So I know too much about fun and not <laughs> enough about wrestling. I didn't wrestle there, which people, that's their first question. But I know too much about fun. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we all do. And uh, I think he made a he actually made a mature decision, even though he didn't know it. And it changed his life. Uh, his, his leadership track has been incredible, uh, both on the mat and off the mat. And uh, I, can't, I can't thank his coaches and his uh, professors enough. That's awesome. So Cumberland, so was he down by Lake Cumberland the whole time? Because that's still yeah, a cool place a, to be. Yeah, it's Williamsburg, Kentucky. It's a small little town, small campus. Um, really, I would say probably 60%, probably 50% of the students are athletes. Oh, really? So it's, it's all about, you know, going to class, maximizing grades so you can, you can participate. So when did he graduate? In May. Oh, so he's brand new to the team. 
Yeah, he's interned for four years. He's, you know, but he's in an immersion program right now. And, you know, fortunately, our company's in a place in which we have the, the infrastructure to support that. So it'll take him two years before he actually lands in his position. And the reason for that, Sean, and, and family businesses are unique, trust me. Uh, he, he truly needs to experience every department, understand what everybody does. So he respects them and appreciates them. Absolutely. And he does. Yeah. Well, you got to do the job to know what the job entails because pushing broom sucks. Yeah. We all know it. And you don't know until you push broom. That's right. So um, some of the other things we talked about is you guys have a, a pipeline of recruits. So you're bringing in young people all the time. Uh, kind of speak to why do you feel that's important and how do you even get to that point? Um, in the construction business where a lot of people are, you know, not to that point yet in their career? Well, there's a time to go out and hire Tom Brady um, when you have to yeah, and pay the price. But I think to build a sustainable business, you need a recruiting pipeline that starts at the foundation of the business and you need to invest in growing long-term tenured colleagues. And we call all of our employees colleagues. Um, we made this, we had the wherewithal and the resources to institute a very robust internship program about 10 years ago, paid huge dividends. Uh, at first we thought, oh, you know, can we spend all this money and all this time? And really I kind of force fed uh, some of our senior leaders into creating a very structured pr- uh, program uh, for, for their interns. And it's by department and by business. They have a budgeted allocation. The plan has to be approved. And then there is what we call TLAs throughout the process, basically reviews on a periodic basis with the interns. Long story short, we try and endear the interns so they are investing and having a great experience. We're getting getting something out of it. And hopefully some of them will want to stay in our business. They have. And so I will give you one great example. One of our interns has been with us for over 10 years hired out of Purdue through an internship process. He's now the vice president of our construction company. And he's just done a phenomenal job. Uh, he's earned it. And, but it never would have happened had we not created that pipeline, that opportunity uh, to invest in young people and them invest in us. What well, sounds like maybe when you got started, that wasn't on the table. That took some coaxing over time. I know that you've been in the business since the 80s. So if it just finally happened 10 years ago, you've been having this conversation for a while. You know, it's about resource. It's yeah. about uh, uh, senior leadership. And I'm blessed. Our company's blessed to have some incredible senior leaders. We have, I'm going to tell you about almost 300 years of experience in multifamily at the senior leadership level. And they understand what it takes to attract great talent, what it takes to grow. Um, individuals. So as resources became available in our business, we, we started allocating towards that effort and uh, it's paid big dividends. When I started, it was, you know, we're in an office building in Napanee and, you know, there was probably six of us in the office and we started building the business and it was been a great journey. Uh, but it, uh, you were doing three people's jobs at that time. Lots of hats, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We've, um, We've got these blue collar blueprint hats and um, 
the, what we say, or at least what I say when I go in the clients is I say, Hey, here's another hat. If you want to go ahead and take some off your desk, I'll grab this one in a couple of weeks and a couple more. <laughs> and I it's the it. truth. It's the truth. Absolutely. We, we all are wearing too many hats. Um, and it's hard to let go of things. I think that's the, whether it's money, time, energy, our own personal touch, because nobody can do it our way. It's, it's tough. Guilty as charged. Uh, yeah. I will tell you though, once you get to a certain level of volume, you're forced to delegate. You, you have to, and you better be prepared to do it in a, in a very systematic, uh, structured way or it's going to spin out of control. Usually those inefficiencies are learned the hard way. We say do it, ditch it, or delegate it. <laughs> I like it. The three Ds. That's the only way to do it. So um, let's go back and talk about where your business truly started. So your dad started the business in the 70s, right? In a little town called Napanee? Yeah. He, uh, he started a business called um, Sterling Realty, Inc. in Napanee, Indiana, uh, residential brokerage, and uh, really had learned a little bit of the development business working for somebody else in Valparaiso. And so started to do some development work and he became aware of uh, a multifamily housing program for rural Indiana through his association with the Indiana Builders Association. And he started to develop small rural communities. He started with a duplex in Milford, Indiana. And when I came on board, uh, he had started a small property management company, the realty company, and I think there were three properties. And then together we grew the business and uh, you know, the rest is history. But uh, he, he's the guy and uh, he's a true visionary. Um, and he is uh, very inspiring. And, and we, we are yin and yang. We are a great partnership. So I take it uh, he's the visionary. You're the implementer by yin and yang. Yeah, but I've had to become a visionary too over the years. So we rubbed off on each other pretty well. But absolutely, you know, he was he was the major risk taker and I was the executor. And uh, over time, uh, we, we really complemented each other's skills. That's amazing. I think that's what every business needs, right? Um, I, too, work with my father. The only problem is we're both visionaries most of the time. <laughs> so we both are trying to take the ship to the, you know, the moon. Yeah. And then we've got two implementers in our office. One's uh, Eve, he's my age, he's my business partner and some subsidiary stuff that we do. And if it wasn't for those people that tell you, hey, we can't do this yet, we'd run this place into the ground without them. Oh yeah, you gotta so, have both. You gotta yeah, have both. You got to, absolutely. And I see a lot of uh, people, especially in the construction world, they're shooting for the moon. They're not keeping their numbers right. They don't have that second eye. And, you know, 2008 happens and you're not put in a good position and bad things happen. It's been great bringing my brother on board. Uh, I'd say 20 years, it's went like a blink of an eye. But he, he truly now runs the entire construction division along with that young man I talked about named Baron. Uh, and now he has taken on more of a uh, kind of a COO role. And, and that's the goal over time to get him uh, he'd get his arms around more of the business uh, so that we have a very structured transition. But it takes it takes that type of commitment and those kind of people to make it work. And I think we've been very fortunate to have that. It takes a lot of time. So as you grew, it sounds like you've grown into 
you know, this much larger organization since the seventies and multifamily, did you develop a lot of that as a lot of that managed properties? How do you start gaining clients on the management side? How do you start developing more properties? How do you start buying and how do you even get into self-storage? We, we have done both. We have, we have developed and built part of our portfolio and we have acquired and renovated part of our portfolio. And so I would say we have three buckets of properties. We have affordable, which is truly within a capital A, meaning uh, rent restricted, income based. We have what's called workforce housing, which is a very important segment of multifamily. And then we have class A, what we would call core assets. And we've, we've, you can develop class A, you can de develop affordable, you can't develop uh, workforce housing, which the numbers don't work. So you have to acquire and renovate properties to increase that housing stock. So we started into this and we really got into it as most young businesses do that are capital constrained through a program called the, the, the USDA 515 program, Farmers Home Administration, in which you, you could get a low interest loan that allowed us then to do the, build the project. We then had our own management company that would manage it and that brought in income. We were in that program basically for a thousand units and, and moved into market rate development and what's called loan composite tax credit development. And over the years that moved into just standard uh, conventional finance properties. And so it's, it's truly a journey as, as you become less capital constrained, obviously your options grow, but in the early, early years of a business like we had, uh, every, every cent counted and we were trying to lever everything we could to make these work. It, it worked beautifully. Um, I will tell you, it was not without headaches. Um, affordable housing comes with it, a lot of social engineering and a lot of baggage that you have to address to play in that game. Uh, con true conventional finance and development is less complicated from the social aspect, but much more complicated from an execution standpoint. Absolutely. So again, those, those lessons are learned the hard way. It sounds like the 515 program you learned from the association itself or your dad did? No, really um, through networking and really the Indiana Builders Association and National Association of Home Builders have two, really three main pillars. One is networking, meeting your peers, expanding your own personal uh, friendship network and your colleague network um, of business associates, education, and lastly, advocacy. And, and through that network and through advocacy, we became very familiar with uh, the, the gentleman that really ran that program at the time, Wayne Schreckengass. Uh, so the old guys watching this will know who Wayne was. Yeah. Wayne was the state architect um, for the 515 program. And Wayne really had to work hard to get people into the program and start producing product. Nobody knew what to do, how to do it, how to utilize the, the resource. And Wayne knew my dad. And one thing leads to another. You know how it goes. Mm -hmm. And through that association, like many, many things happen in our lives, um, a whole segment of our business was born. And I have the IBA to thank for that because of those relationships we've built over the years. Who you know, not what you know, right? Absolutely. 
and a couple of struggles on the way there. So after you get into multifamily, how does that kind of transition to self-storage world? Yeah, so I kind of, I'm kind of the one that brought that up. Um, you know, I was looking for alternatives to, uh, for diversity in the business, meaning product diversity. And, you know, I was young and dumb and really didn't, if I knew today, you know, that, that saying, uh, and said, hey, you know, what, why don't we look at this? And my dad said, you know what, you run with it, learn about it bring it back. Let's talk about it. And for many years, we'd build, you know, build one every couple of years or something and build a little portfolio and sell it off and do a little more. Well, this time, um, because of the way we look at things, we are aggregating projects. Well, our goal is to have a hundred stores um, and then create a major event. But uh, really it started through just an idea to add, add a, another product line or another leg to the stool and we've been doing it now for 35, 40 years. So do you own those properties in all 15 states you work in? Uh, we're roughly 15 states. And, oh. and yes, we, we, own, we own the stores. We don't manage third party for anybody. Uh, we have investment partners in everything we do. Uh, sometimes investment partners with us 40 years. Sometimes they're brand new. And um, they come from all, you know, individuals all the way through large private equity firms. And, uh, but we are the sponsors and general partners on all the properties. Perfect. So kind of like a syndicate in a sense, right? Or not really? Uh, we do a variety of things. We put together funds in which people invest in funds and then we, we buy assets, uh, renovate, uh, or reposition, hold, what have you, produce income mm -hmm. and have a large capital event upon sale. Uh, and then other times it's on an individual basis, what we call single purpose entity basis and uh, everything in between. It's worked very well. And uh, we, we like being a, a privately held company, have no interest in uh, being a licensed investor, investment uh, company. Yeah, too many hoops to jump through at that point. Absolutely. So um, when you say create ma major events, you're looking to create sale opportunities, capital? Yeah. At the right time. Uh, you know, it's we, we always do um, a, for, a forecast, an exit forecast, but, but truly we're focused on highest and best value. And so if we tell uh, our investors, look, th this property is scheduled to be a seven-year hold, we might sell in year three, might sell in year 10. It really depends on where we're at in the investment cycle, the real estate cycle, and where the economy is at at any given time. In the last 10 years, Really, it's we've sold earlier in the cycle because of the crazy cap rates and incredible values that have been driven. Let's talk about cap rates and market rates right now, because obviously, you know, we're in this quote unquote recession, truly. Um, where is the real estate market? Where are the markets for exit plans? Um, are you guys still holding properties? Are you selling because these are the highs? These might be the highs. You know, I listen to enough real estate podcasts where everybody's saying, hold, hold, hold. It's only going to go bigger. Inflation is going to, you know, keep jumping rate or jumping prices, even if rates jump. What's your thoughts? Well, you listen to enough podcasts and you'll get really confused. Yeah, that's the truth. Uh, you know, we kind of pick the guys we follow. We have a, we do a, a large investor meeting every year and we bring in a national economist to work in our strategic planning at the same time and then also address that group. And I think He's done a great job being very accurate and we have others, but to answer your question, 
multifamily and self storage are somewhat unique. They are they're the darlings of the real estate industry right now, in addition to industrial and, and data centers. There's no scale in data centers. You can't build a lot of them, uh, but they are their gold mines. Uh, industrial is right there with multifamily self-storage. But for the multifamily industry, we look at fundamentals first. What's the supply and demand look like? There are multiple studies out that, range, that tell you there's between a million and four million underserved households seeking rental housing in this country. We've picked a couple that we believe is kind of in the center. And so we're gonna say there's three to three and a half million households. The maximum we build in a year in this country is roughly 500,000 units. Our average has been 350,000. We lose 100,000 a year through obsolescence. Insurance, people don't rebuild, uh, condemnation, what have you. So you can quickly see we can't gain ground very quickly. So consequently, we see tailwinds, significant tailwinds through the end of the decade at least from a supply and demand standpoint. We can't build enough rental housing. Knowing that, we're in it for the long game. But as I tell my team and, and all of our investors, you can make money in every part of the cycle. You just have to be cautious, be wise, and stick to your, stick to your underwriting, uh, stick to what you know, and, and don't get over your, out in front of your skis. So in this environment, we're buying and selling, and we, but we are truly putting our head down and developing continuing to develop in spite of the significant increase in cost. Because like you just said, Sean, we believe anything we can get in the ground today is truly gonna gain value just by virtue of inflationary pressures that we see continuing through the decade. Not at 8%, by the way, but something moderating higher than what we saw before the spike in inflation. 4%, I, I don't know, um, but certainly not less than 2%. So having said all that, That'll put pressure on rents, and that's going to create more NOI, and then eventually more value. Self-storage is much the same, but I don't think the tailwinds are quite the same. There's robust demand in certain metros and in certain submarkets. You got to be very, very careful on what you, how you identify need and the submarkets that you want to develop in. It's a very, very pin cushion process. And so when you say you're underwriting, how are you guys underwriting a lot of your, your deals? Because I've always heard, and I think this might be a Warren Buffett quote, it's not about what you sell it for, it's what you buy it for. Absolutely. So how do you guys do your underwriting? And then how do you guys negotiate to make it you know, worth your while? Well, obviously inbound or as you buy something, you're buying it as is, and then you have to project how you're going to create value. So we look at the current operations and what we are willing to pay for it, which creates an inbound cap rate. And then we look at our business plan and our exit, and we determine what that outbound cap rate is going to be. And we want to maintain a spread there, literally a higher cap rate upon sale than a lower cap rate only because you need a margin. It, it, you know, yes, we've been in a world in which we were buying here and selling here. That's not sustainable and that's not a good business strategy. Uh, a lot of people have been, haven't been in it a long time 
are doing that. And there's, that's going to create great buying opportunities for me. Um, so what we do, we try and maintain at least a 75 to 100 basis point spread between inbound and outbound cap rate on, on what we call value add assets, meaning you buy a property and you're going to uh, implement capital improvements, uh, unit renovations, put structured finance on it, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's been a great formula. The, the trick is don't get greedy. Don't compress that cap rate spread. Don't put a fantasy in your underwriting thinking that 9% rent growth is sustainable because it's not. Mm-hmm. In other words, have very solid core assumptions and stick with those core assumptions, but always be reviewing them, updating them. So just to back up for some people who may not understand lingo, because I think um... I understand cap rate. Could you explain what a cap rate is and then why the margin is important as you try to underwrite your deals? Well, the cap, the capitalization rate is a shortcut to determining value. Um, so if, if you take your net operating income, annual net operating income, and divide it by the current market cap rate, meaning what things you're selling for, uh, you're going to do, have a quick thumbnail of value. And, and there's other ways to, to value properties, um, very, very complicated ways, but it's a quick way that the industry utilizes to measure value and then to look out in the future on what they believe that will be. And so we use that. Uh, we use other forms of valuation, but that's our quick down and dirty measuring stick uh, on valuation. So when you are, so a comps are a big thing when it comes to purchasing properties. Where do you guys find comps, especially if you don't see a lot of stuff on the MLS or things that are selling online? Um, we, part of being a business a long time is creating a great network, creating great relationships. Our business is built on long-term relationships. And our, our team hears me say this all the time. <laughs> because um, it's true. And those long-term relationships create opportunity. And for us, we get phone calls from the brokerage community saying, hey, um, we're going to be taking this deal to market. Would you like to try and preempt it? Get a look and try and preempt? Because we know you always close. And we do. And so we get those opportunities. And typically when we do, and we don't convert everyone, by the way, but typically when we get serious and we like the deal, we're buying it at a discount. That's huge. Otherwise, we also look at fully marketed transactions, uh, fully marketed properties. Um, We are typically in third place, fourth place, second place in the bidding process. But I will tell you in this environment, we're getting phone calls saying, hey, number one and two blew out. Is your number still good? Are you still interested? So again, it's that discipline. Um, maintaining uh, the underwriting standards we've implemented and not, not buying just to be buying. Yeah, especially in today's market. Mm-hmm. So funding. So you're going to private investors every single time. You guys have an internal capital source. You guys are going to the bank. Um, I think a lot of people that are in development struggle with funding because who do I go to? Do I want to be a GP and have all these investors? 
do I want all these other mouths to feed? Because it goes back to what you said before, don't get greedy. We've taken the long game, as I've said. So we aren't fighting over the last nickel laying on the table. Um, and that served us well. Uh, we have very happy and loyal partners. So we have many, many high net worth investors that invest alongside us, but we also have uh, family offices and private equity firms that invest with us. And really, Sean, it's based upon the size of the transaction. When it gets to be a very large deal, very large project, we really, we really can't tax our high net worth investors for that. We have to go to one of our other partners. So it's a dichotomy. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a spectrum of, of investors. And uh, we try though, to always have product for our high net worth investors, because as we buy and sell, develop and sell, it's creating uh, capital and they want that capital to go back to work. So many times if we sell something, I get a phone call saying, Lance, where can I put these proceeds? Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's a process that you grow that capital base, but there's also an obligation to keep it working. Is that part of that from a 1031 exchange where people are just trying to put their funds back to work so they're not going through a, a tax basis? You know, there's ways to do it, Sean. And we're back, we're doing it right now. We're doing it through what's called a tenant in common uh, structure for practice practical purposes, it's like a 1031, but with a little more flexibility, but it's very hard. It's, it's hard because you have a group of investors and everybody has to agree if it's a true 1031, they ain't gonna happen. Yeah. A tenant in common gives you the ability for those individual investors to then invest in a tax deferred investment. Normally we don't do that. Normally it's um, harvest, pay your tax, reinvest, the difference. and do it all over again. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's worked well. And, it, and I think it's a model many, many of my peers follow. Absolutely. So now you said that your big location is the Southeast. What's pushed kind of your business down South? Because you said you're all in the, the Eastern seaboard. You don't like the West. Yeah. So if, if you looked at our portfolio, you would see really a, an L shape primarily. Um, Michigan, we'd love to be in Wisconsin, by the way. We're just not. But Michigan down through Alabama, down through the Carolinas, Georgia, uh, and then up through, up through North Carolina and North Florida and Central Florida. We have outliers like uh, Northwest Arkansas, which is a very robust um, area. Uh, highly, highly recommend doing business there. And then we have some other outliers out West here and there, but that's not our focus. So our, so we've, we built a beachhead in really two major areas, Atlanta and Charlotte, and built uh, properties and acquired properties in uh, secondary and tertiary markets then throughout those states. So when it comes to the intangibles that people don't think about, um, when you get into those Southeast markets, what is it like when you're underwriting a deal because you've got weather events that we don't have over here, right? So I'm in the insurance business. Obviously, the, the wind and hurricanes are a much bigger deal in those southeastern states than they are in the central states. But then again, we have terrible hailstorms that can ruin a multifamily roof, and then it's you know even more money. So talk about kind of the difference in when you're going through and tearing apart those deals and the things you have to be aware of, or maybe even lessons you had to learn. Absolutely. Obviously, if you're doing coastal work, 
um, there's a there's a zone along the coast that's going to significantly increase your insurance. And there's and there's areas in which and you know all this, Sean. There's there's hail and wind zones. Um, Oklahoma, North North Alabama. I can keep going. And lessons learned, uh, certainly in the in the hail wind zones, is um, look you can get insurance all day long. But the deductible many times is 2% of property value. And we've had a couple of events like that um, in Nebraska and uh, in, in Alabama. So what we've done is learned and built in the appropriate amount of premium to mitigate that, that potential cat catastrophic loss. And in the coastal areas, we've simply done our due diligence. And, and we do due diligence everywhere. We employ trusted experts, consultants that validate our assumptions. For instance, the insurance market, as everybody watching this knows, is always changing. Right now, it's a hard market. So we have consultants really in each region that look at our underwriting and say, yeah, I, I, you're, you're right. You're within the range. I'd add 10% to your number to be comfortable. Uh, same thing with taxes. Uh, we have in every state we're in, we have a consultant in that state that is the guy or that gal that truly understands state law and, and how the assessors go about reassessing assets. Uh, it's, it's the stroke of death on buying something and missing the reset in, in real estate taxes. Um, so South Carolina is a great example. Very, very uh, draconian reassessments. You got to know that going in or you're going to be buying a very, very bad transaction. So uh, really, it's, it's not don't rely just internally. Make sure you have the right consultants, the right uh, professionals around you uh, and trust and trust that they can get the job done through experience. Yeah, I think that goes back to who you know, not what you know. Right. Yeah. And um, delegate. It's a different kind of delegation, right? When you have to hire a consultant, I think there's a lot of people that maybe don't think that they know everything, but really hate the idea of paying somebody who they don't know, who's an expert. I'll give you a great example of that, Sean. Our geotech, geotechnical investigations on our new development sites have went from about $5,000 to about $50,000. Ouch. And the reason is, in many places in the Southeast, you have bedrock that's closer to the surface than what we have in Indiana or Michigan. Well, consequently, if you don't do the right investigation up front, you can be looking at millions of dollars in cost. And so we do uh, a, a, a nuclear, I don't even know the name of it, basically it looks subsurface uh, through a process almost like uh, uh, imaging. That has saved us tremendous money or has pushed us to abandon sites because we know that the numbers just won't work. Um, it, it, you have to blast or can't blast and you can't remove the rock or if you did, it would be millions of dollars. So doing that due diligence, paying the extra money saves a lot of money in the long run. I was actually just talking to a buddy this morning um, and what we were talking about was always try to talk yourself out of a deal. Because if you do everything to talk yourself out of a deal, you never do a bad deal. Because if something looks, you know, rosy and you keep trying to talk yourself back into it, no matter how much information you get, you're going to get smoked on it. 
you know, we, we have an investment committee and it's for a reason. Uh, it's so that one person can't, isn't just responsible for making the decision that there's multiple points of view and there's a structure that we have to follow to present a transaction and get it approved. It's not like, you know, 30 people sitting in a room, but it is structured. It is different opinions. And there has to be a sign off by all stakeholders, including our operations team, everybody involved. So there can't be finger pointing or, well, I didn't know that. Everybody does know that. Served us, it's really served us well. Well, it sounds like you guys are an information company. All you guys is, it's an underwriting company. We're a real estate services company. And at the, at the, at the core, we're an investment company. And that's what it takes. That's why I think that um, you have, you took the chance to invest in young people. I think a lot of people look at interns and employees, especially when you're looking at a true PNL. And I'm talking to true contractors, um, people that are subcontractors, guys that are on the on the job every day. You look at your subs as labor. It's a cost line. It's a cost line. It's an expense line. At some point, you've got to look at your employees as an investment in your business. We do. Um, we, we absolutely do. Uh, we have a tuition reimbursement program. We, I mean, it goes on and on. Um, we spend a great deal of time looking at our benefits, looking at how we can follow our mission statement and, and truly encourage and educate and support their careers because it's going to benefit us in the long run. I love that. Well, Lance, I want to be respectful of your time this morning. I've absolutely had a blast on this podcast. Um, I love real estate investing. I love, you know, seeing what people are doing in other parts of the country. Um, I am from a depleted town of Anderson, Indiana, where everybody tells you nothing's ever going to come back, but I am doubling down. We are doubling down. Um, it can only go get better, right? I agree. I agree. And Anderson's on the way up. Has to be. My dad. Some good stuff going on there. Yeah. Sean, it's been a, uh, an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Uh, you've got a great podcast, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you this morning. I appreciate it. We'll send this to the IBA so they can send it to everybody we know. Thank you, Lance. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thank you again so much for your love and support of the Performance Group podcast. For more information on the podcast, the Performance Group, or even our guests, feel free to reach out directly via our website, performancegroupindiana.com, or feel free to email me directly, which is sean at performancegroupindiana.com. We'll see you guys next week.